Good morning. I'm so glad to see you all this morning. Can you all hear me okay? No? Yes? I'm so glad to see you. This is my first trip to Dubai, and uh, I come to you from Houston, Texas, the great country of Texas, and am thrilled to be here and visit with you. Uh, I have to say, I love your weather. I have heard that it is he- it's like this year-round. So I'm really excited to come back in July sometime and just walk around the city at one or two in the afternoon and hang out with you guys. So I've really had a wonderful time so far. Uh, as my friend Eric mentioned, I have uh, been here for just a couple days and have the privilege of working with uh, students in the Gulf Training Center and uh, help to equip them and learn from them as we all go out to our different places of ministry as God calls us. So I'm very thankful to be here. I've been married to Cindy for uh, 16 years, and we have four kids, uh, Judah, who is 13, Ember is 12, and then Isaiah and Brooklyn are both 11, and they are from the countries of Uganda and then the country of Rwanda, and we're really thankful to have them in our family, and I'm excited to be here, but also excited to see them when I head back on Monday. Uh, If you follow the, the global news at all, you may remember that back in August of 2017, there was a hurricane that came through Houston, Texas, the city that my family had just moved to. We actually moved to Houston in June of 2017, and then in August of 2017, the hurricane came through, and it dumped all kinds of water onto our city, which is a very flat city, and floods easily. And our church building at Bridgepoint Bible Church flooded. We had uh, almost three feet of water in in our building, and we had to move out for... uh, About a year, we had 50 of our families who were flooded and had to leave their homes. Many of them went to live with one another. Uh, Many of them obviously had to rebuild or just sell their homes that were damaged and move out. And that was a really difficult way to start being a pastor for the first year and a half. But through that experience, I found that there are so many incredible ways that God works through the hardest things that he sends us through. And that's such an important thing to know and remember throughout life because we face so many trials, so much pain, so much loss. We walk through so much confusion and uncertainty as we go through life in a broken and fallen world. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about the doctrine, the truth of providence, God's providence. And the word providence simply means that God orchestrates everything in the believer's life to accomplish his good purposes. God orchestrates or uses, works together every single thing in a believer's life to accomplish his good purposes. The most famous verse in the Bible that talks about God's providence is Romans chapter 8, and verse 28, which says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things God, as we just sang, weaves together into a beautiful tapestry that is for the good of his people to help us grow, to look more like Jesus, to train us to trust him more to help us to live lives that are more patient, 
where we endure with joy, where we go through whatever we go through, trusting that God's hand is on us. That's what Romans 8.28 talks about. But sometimes a statement like Romans 8.28 is best understood through a story like Exodus 2. So I want to share with you one of my favorite stories in the Bible, the birth of this child who will grow up to be a deliverer for Israel. Back in Genesis, God promised to a man named Abraham that he would give him many children. They would become a great nation. They would live on a special land, and God would use that descendant of Abraham, a certain descendant of Abraham, to bless all the nations of the world. And that ultimate best descendant of Abraham would be Jesus Christ, who came and by suffering on the cross, rising from the dead, and leading people like many in this room to trust in him, he blessed all the nations, like we see here and like we see in my city at our church in Houston. God promised to bless Abraham so he would be a blessing. And after Abraham came along, Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob had the 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph was one of those sons. And Joseph had 11 brothers who got jealous of him. They sold him into slavery in Egypt. In Egypt, Joseph was falsely accused, then he was imprisoned, and then he was completely forgotten by everybody except for God. God brought Joseph out of prison, and then he raised him up to be the ruler of Egypt so that when there was a famine throughout the whole land, he could stockpile food beforehand, and then his brothers and his family that he had been left behind by could come down to Egypt and survive. Because Abraham's family needs to survive if God's purposes through that family are going to come true. And there in Egypt, these descendants of Abraham, they keep multiplying, growing and growing and growing. In the United States, our kids often sing a song in church, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. That's how the song goes. And then there's a whole dance that goes with it, but I came here to teach, not to dance, so I'm going to stop there. They're multiplying and growing, and Father Abraham and his sons are having many sons. But after Joseph dies, and the Pharaoh that knew Joseph dies, the new Pharaoh sees this multiplying family as a threat, because they're in his land, and they're growing like crazy. So he chooses to enslave them, but that doesn't slow down their growth because you can't stop God's promises from coming true. So Pharaoh makes a much worse command. He says, every baby boy that's born should be thrown into the Nile River and will let the girls live in order to slow down the growth of these people. You see that in Exodus 1, verse 22. So God's plan of salvation is centered on this family of Abraham, but now they're slaves, and they're also being systematically killed, and their baby boys are being thrown in the river to drown. So the question becomes, where is God, and what is God doing? This doesn't look like his promises are coming true. 
And many of you, I'm confident, have circumstances in your life right now where you feel like God is not there and his promises are not coming true. He's not doing what he says he'll do in your life or in a Christian community's life or in the world in general. So where is God and what is he doing? In Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, in this story of providence, we're going to find there is a little bundle of hope in this child that is all wrapped up, covered, and protected in the providence of God. God orchestrates so many details in this child's life to accomplish his good purposes. And I want to unwrap these different layers wrapped around this child, 10 different layers that show the amazing things God was doing as he brought this child into the world and led him to be Israel's redeemer. I'm often going to use the word providential. And when I say providential, I simply mean here is something or someone or some circumstance that God is using in a surprising way to accomplish his purposes. And the first is this. It's a providential ancestry a providential ancestry in verse 1, a providential family line that leads to the life of this baby. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. So a Hebrew couple gets married, but we're not told what their names are. Elsewhere in the Bible, in two places, we're told that the husband's wife is Amram, And the wife's name is Jochebed. So Amram and Jochebed. But why don't we hear their names in this passage? Why are they just a man and a woman that get married? Because the tribe they come from is more important to this story than their individual names. What tribe do they come from? Both from the tribe of Levi. What would the tribe of Levi become? the priestly tribe, the tribe of those who God would assign to stand between himself and his people as mediators, people that would represent the people before God. So if these two Hebrew people have a baby together, that baby would be a priest, someone who would stand before God on behalf of man. This child's family line is a hint towards what they will do. Here's the second layer of providence. It's a providential threat in verse 2. So the Levite woman conceived and bore a... Every parent is anxious to know the gender of their unborn child. In the U.S., we have gender reveal parties where a couple will have someone else find out the gender of their child and then set up a whole party where at a certain time they cut open a cake with white frosting or something and the colors inside are either blue for a boy or pink for a girl in the U.S. And they have all sorts of other ways of being surprised and rejoicing in the gender of their new child. But with Jochebed, who's pregnant, as her belly grows, there are no ultrasounds. There are no sonograms. She is not able to know 
what gender her child will be. And yet, life and death hang on the gender of this baby. If this baby is a girl, she'll live. If her baby is a boy, he will soon be torn away from her by the Egyptians and thrown like a lifeless doll into the Nile River. It's a providential threat. The child is under a death sentence from the moment he is born because the woman conceived and bore a son. Now, is that news the worst news in this story or the best news in the story? It, it's both. This is horrible news that she's having a boy because his life will be instantly ended. But the rest of the story and the incredible things God does in the story wouldn't happen unless he was born under this threat of death. So God uses this threat. He weaves this threat of death into his story so that he does amazing things that we now, 3,400 years later, marvel at. Providential ancestry and a providential threat. The, the valley of the shadow of death is where God does some of his most brilliant work. It's where he loves to shine his light so that we see how powerful and in control he is. And this leads us to our third layer after this baby boy is born. And it is his providential appearance. His providential appearance. Even the way he looks as a baby is controlled by God. Verse 2. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now, every mom thinks that her baby is the cutest. That's part of what it means to be a mom. Every parent thinks their child is the cutest. Jochebed, this child's mother, is no exception. But it, seems, but it seems like she sees something more in her child. She saw that he was a fine child. It means good or lovely in some noticeable way. Maybe he was cuter than his older sister. Maybe he slept through the night sooner. Maybe he cried less. Any of those things make you feel like your child is a fine child. We don't know what exactly it was about this baby's appearance, but this is actually an important detail because in the New Testament, this same detail is mentioned twice as an important part of the story. In Hebrews 11, verse 23, we read that Moses was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 20, we find at the time Moses was born, he was beautiful in God's sight. So in Hebrews chapter 11, he's a fine or beautiful child to his parents, but in Acts chapter 7, he's called beautiful in God's sight. God had a special plan for him, and somehow his parents seemed to recognize there was something special about him. God is working through this child's DNA. God is in control of chromosomes. God is in control of a baby's new personality. God is orchestrating 
this baby boy's earliest behaviors and his appearance so that his parents see that he's a fine child and hide him for three months. Do you believe that God's providence is that meticulous and careful and thorough, that he's working his good purposes in your life if you know Christ in this kind of way? Matthew 10 verse 30 says, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Jesus says that because his disciples are going out and they're going to encounter persecution when they seek to share Christ with the people God has sent them to. And so he says, don't fear because the hairs of your head are numbered. Has anybody here counted the hairs on your own head? We worry about so many things in our lives, don't we? And yet God knows so much more than we do and cares so much more than we could even about our own lives. This child has a providential appearance, and even that God is using for his purpose. A fourth layer of providence. He has providential parents in verse 2. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. She hid him for three months. This Levite mom is fearless, This child is supposed to die. Pharaoh, the ruler of the land, has said so. And you do not want to stand against an ancient Egyptian pharaoh, but she does. She hides a baby. Does that sound weird to anyone else? She hides a baby. I just flew for 14 hours straight through from Houston to Dubai, and there was a small child in the seat behind me. And I heard that small child for about half of the trip because you can't hide a baby. Babies aren't hideable. They make themselves known. They cry when they don't feel comfortable, when they're hungry or when they're tired or when they're sick and they don't even tell you what it is that they want. But you can't hide a baby. And yet this mother and this father recognize that God is doing something in the life of their child and They hide him for three months. And again, this is a significant choice they make because once again, the New Testament looks back on this story and talks about it. Acts chapter 7, verse 20. He was brought up for three months in his father's house. Hebrews 11, 23. Again, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Notice that Hebrews 11.23 at the beginning says, by faith, and at the end says, they were not afraid. When you walk by faith, it has a tendency to cripple your fear. And when you walk by fear, it has a tendency to cripple your faith. Faith and fear are not friends. The only kind of fear God wants us to have is the fear of him that leads to wisdom. But not fear of everything that possibly could go wrong in our lives so that we become the most anxious and depressed and stressed out and unfaithful people that we could be, which is, of course, very tempting. But these parents that God in his providence uses trust God. Listen to Psalm 112, verses 6 through 8. 
The righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. And there was going to come a day when after this baby boy had grown up and became Israel's deliverer, that the Israelites would look back and look in triumph on their adversaries. That's what it looks like to trust God. And these providential parents did it. Fifth, a providential abandonment in verses three and four. So these parents have hid their uh, baby boy for three months, but they knew all along that his days were numbered. You cannot keep a young baby Hebrew boy in the complex or in the village for long before the Egyptians find out. And they come and enforce Pharaoh's law that this baby boy would be thrown into the Nile. So verse three, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So after three months, these parents are forced to abandon their baby. So his mother takes some reeds from the riverbank along the Nile and crafts them into a basket. And then she takes a mud tar sealant and she covers the basket with it so that it will float on the Nile. And she builds it, of course, to fit the size of her precious baby, which she knows so well after holding him for three months. And then she walks down to the riverbank and she takes this vessel and she places it onto the Nile River where this baby boy is supposed to be drowned. And she releases him into God's hands. She abandons her baby. The faith, the fear, the uncertainty, the temptation to bitterness. How could the family of Abraham that God said he had blessed be in this situation? If you really take care of your people, God, why am I here at the side of this river handing the most precious thing in my life over to death? Why do I have to live in this kind of uncertainty? Why won't you just tell me what you're doing in this trial? Are those not questions that we join Jochebed in asking throughout our lives? They are, and yet story after story after story in the Old Testament and the New tell us that God is so often using these incredibly difficult circumstances to accomplish his good purposes in our lives and in the lives of everyone who believes in Christ. He's doing incredible things even when we think that all we're experiencing is the worst. A providential abandonment. It's like Abraham raising his knife over his helpless son, Isaac, who was supposed to be the one that God would accomplish his promises through. 
and wondering, what in the world are you telling me to do? That's what this baby's mother does. And then she slips away and stations the baby's older sister as a spy to find out what's going to happen. Now, we're kind of supposed to know what's going to happen in this story already. Not just because we've read the rest of the Bible, but because we've read stories before this one. There is a pattern in this story that the author wants us to see. If you look at the carpet around your feet, you'll see a pattern. And that pattern you see helps you see what the next few meters of carpet are going to look like. You expect the pattern to be the same, don't you? Because you know that someone intelligent with a sense of beauty designed this carpet. So when you see the pattern at your feet and you look down your row, you see the same pattern. There are two stories in the Old Testament that use the word basket or teba in Hebrew. This story and an earlier story in Genesis 6. Genesis 6.14. God says to Noah, make yourself a teba or a huge basket of gopher wood. Make rooms in the teba or the huge basket and cover it inside and out with pitch. There are two baskets in the Old Testament. It's Noah's ark and Moses' floating crib. Jochebed, his mother, has crafted a mini ark of deliverance. It's going to float on waters of death and judgment, just like Noah's ark floated on waters of death and judgment. And that ark is going to carry across the one who is going to be the new leader of God's new people. Noah and his seven family members would be the start of a whole new human race after everyone else had perished in the flood. And Moses himself would come off of that mini ark and he would grow up to rescue the Israelites from their slavery and lead them out to be God's new people. When you read the Bible, just like you read this carpet, you see the patterns unfolding and they only get better and better and better until they come to their final fulfillment, the most beautiful form of them in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you see it already here in this story. In just the second book of the Bible, what we're watching is a child of God who's handed over to death, but who makes it through that threat of death to the other side and leads to the freedom of the people of God. It's the gospel in the Old Testament pointing forward to what Jesus would do through his cross and resurrection, a providential abandonment, which leads to the sixth layer of providence, a providential discovery, a providential discovery in verses five and six. So here's a tiny Jewish infant who's floating on the massive Nile River. He's under the sentence of death because he's a Jewish male baby. He's totally helpless. 
So who's going to find him? Verse five. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. A quick note. If you have a newborn who's crying all the time, in this story, the crying of Moses in the basket is something God uses to make Pharaoh's daughter show him compassion and then keep him. So it's okay that your baby's crying. That's my point. God can use even your crying baby through the night to accomplish his good purposes in your life and with his people. But who discovers this baby boy? The worst possible person. Someone from Pharaoh's own family. Pharaoh's the one that made the law that all Israelite boys were to be killed. This is a horrible turn in the story. She's a member of the royal family. She recognizes that the boy is Jewish, doesn't she? This is one of the Hebrews' children. And she obviously knows the law. But this worst thing in the story is also, again, the best thing in the story, isn't it? Because through her discovery of this baby boy, God is going to accomplish the incredible purposes he has in the future. Her heart is in God's hands. You would think that she would have immediately reported this child to the authorities and watched him killed. But instead, she takes pity on him. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is directing her heart to have mercy on this child. If you belong to Christ, your life is going to be filled with the worst, best things that could ever happen. We went through a horrific flood in Houston, Texas. I had no idea how to serve 50 families who were flooded that I didn't even know because I got there three months before. How are you supposed to lead people through one of the worst trials of their lives when you don't even know their names? It felt helpless. It felt miserable. We had so many plans for what we wanted to see God do in and through our church, and it seemed like he took all of it away. And yet, I can report to you now, 15 months after that flood first came through, that God has done incredible things that never could have taken place in the life of our church if we had not gone through that and gone through it together, passing through water on the way to life. The worst circumstance will often be the best providence. The hardest trial in your life will develop the strongest trust that you've ever had. The darkest night becomes the brightest dawn. And as we all know, if you want to see a rainbow, you have to have some rain. That is what God is doing in this story. And the providential discovery turns into, seventh, a providential reunion in verses seven and eight. 
You remember the older sister that was hanging out to figure out what happened? She reappears. And she's just like her mom, totally fearless. She walks right up to the Egyptian princess who's holding her baby brother. In verse 7, his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you uh, like a random nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse this random child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, sure, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. (laughs) Do you think she walked back to her mom or you think she ran? Like, mom, you will never believe what happened. I'm standing there trying to figure out what's going to happen, thinking that he's going to be drowned or someone's going to go take him away and we'll never know what happened to him. And all of a sudden, the royal family comes and they seem to show compassion. And I went up and talked to him, not knowing what would happen. And they want a nurse for this child. So, mom, you want baby brother back? Yes, I do. But remember, as Jochebed and her daughter make that same walk back to the riverbank to be reunited, imagine what's going on in their minds and hearts. They're retracing their steps, the painful steps that she had taken before to release her baby into God's hands. She's now walking that same path, and she's seeing how the path of pain is now the path of providence. It's how God was working all along. And as we get older in life and we get to look back on what God has done, not just look forward with worry, but look back with confidence, we realize God was weaving these things together all along. And there's a providential reunion. And this leads to, it just gets better, providential funding in verse 9. So Pharaoh's daughter said to Jochebed, take this random child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. I'll pay you to take care of this child. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Do you notice that to Pharaoh's daughter, this child is just a child? Not significant to her. A cute baby that she's going to make sure is taken care of. Jochebed is unnamed here. She's just this anonymous Hebrew woman. And yet in God's cause, so much more is going on than what you can see. On the very same day that he's abandoned, the same day, this baby boy is given back to his biological mother, with royal approval and royal funding. So this is what's going to happen. Pharaoh and his royal bank account are going to finance the education of the boy who will grow up and deliver his own slaves from his hand. God's providence is so thorough, so spectacular, and here's the challenge, so mysterious that only through the eyes of faith can you trust it. And only in hindsight will we see it fully one day. So instead of doubting God, start doubting your doubts. (laughs) The ninth layer providential adoption in verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, 
and he became her son. If it feels like a roller coaster, that's because it is. And if your life feels like it's up and down and positive and negative and good news and then bad news, that is what life in a broken and fallen world looks like. But the faithfulness of God is always keeping us on the track that's leading to his good purposes. So whether it goes up or whether it goes down, you're not coming off the track because God is faithful to his people. Now you have a providential adoption. Once again, this mother has to give her child up. She already did it once. Have you ever been through this before? Lord, I went through a year of chemotherapy and I thought the cancer was gone. I thought it was in remission. And now three years later, I'm getting a new diagnosis. It's come back. I have to do this again? I went through the misery of watching my children walk away from you and throw their lives away. And I thought that they had come back and their lives were stable. And now they're going there again? Lord, I lost my job two times before now. And I thought things were stable. And now it's up in the air again. Doesn't God take us through the same kinds of things over and over again in deeper and deeper ways to build our faith in deeper and deeper ways? If you want to build a foundation in the sands of this world, anybody who builds in this city knows, you got to send the pillars really deep. God is sending the pillars of faith in his people's lives very deep by leading us through challenges over and over and over again to make us into the kind of people that trust him. Jochebed brings her boy to Pharaoh's daughter. He's adopted into her household. He gets a royal education, the experience of being in the royal family. He's protected from the shame of being a slave among the Hebrews. But even here, God protects his faith. And he uses that Egyptian education in the royal household to make him a mighty, mighty person in God's purposes. And then he also protects his faith. Hebrews 11, 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. This baby boy would grow up and trust God as his parents had and be used by God for God's purposes, which leads us to the 10th and final layer that I see in the story. I'm sure there's a lot more. Providential name in verse 10. Pharaoh's daughter names this baby boy that she's found Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. I pulled him up out of this river, so I'll call him Moses. When the Old Testament explains someone's name, it means the meaning of the name is significant, and it's often tied to God's specific purposes for that child. Pharaoh's daughter thinks she's naming this random Hebrew child by the events that surrounded her discovery. She pulled him from a river. But isn't God always working behind the scenes? Here, too, God is at work. The name Moses it points forward 
to that day in the future when Moses himself and the Israelites he's leading will be drawn up out of the waters of the Red Sea leading to their freedom. And there were other passages in the Bible that use this same phrase, God drew me up out of the water to talk about how God delivers his people from certain death. He brings them through that death and leads them out to life on the other side. Even his name is orchestrated by God. Now, some of you might think, hey, this is like kind of a clever message and we appreciate all the interesting things that you've seen in this passage, but is the author of this passage really trying to say those things? And I would ask, well, who is the human author of this passage? It's Moses. It's Moses. Guided by the Holy Spirit, Moses is looking back on his life in hindsight, and he's seeing that all of these twists and turns and trials and problems and uncertainties, God used all of it to raise him up to be Israel's deliverer who would bring them out of slavery and up to the brink of the promised land. He sees that in his life, God has masterfully orchestrated everything. And what God was doing in this story was pointing forward to a day when the prophet greater than Moses would come, Jesus Christ. And we see in his life that he passed under the judgment of death, taking the sins of his people on himself. And then he rose from the dead to new life on the other side of that death so that he could lead a new people out of a far worse slavery, our slavery to sin and death, which lead us to hell. And in the worst event in the history of the world, God was doing the best work in the history of the world, the crucifixion, the abandonment of Jesus Christ, separated from his father so that others could be brought in and made free. This is the kind of majestic thing God does all over the place. And once you begin to believe it, you'll begin to see it in your life and beyond. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do give you our thanks for your faithfulness in our lives. I pray for my friends here. I pray that you would fill them with faith and confidence and joy, knowing that the most difficult things in their lives, you are right now weaving into a beautiful work that you will reveal to them fully in the future. Help us to trust you. Help us to be courageous. Help us to do what's right. Help us not to worry as much as we do and to worship more than we do because these are the beautiful things that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.